Hello and welcome to End Credits here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. I am your host, Adam A. Donaldson. Joining me in a bit will be Tim Phillips. And uh, by the time you're listening to this, I will be fully vaccinated. And I am, uh, I mean, I mean, I got my shot almost two weeks ago. But uh, by the time the show is on the air... Uh, as you're listening to it, Wednesday at 3 p.m., I will, uh, like, the vaccine will have taken effect. It will have been two weeks since I got the shot, which means I am fully vaccinated, and I will likely be in a movie theater watching, uh, a movie, which is something I have not been able to do since, uh, watching Tenant last, I want to say August. August or early September, one of the two. So... I don't know. Eat, eat your heart out. I don't know. <laughs> and Credits is a local movie show for local movie fans. We are here every Wednesday at 3 p.m. to talk about the latest in pop culture and review the newest movies, which this week will be the new horror movie sequel, A Quiet Place Part 2, which you can get in a couple of places. You can stream it for free on Amazon Prime Video, or you can rent it through uh, one of the premium video-on-demand sites like um, Apple, Google, Cineplex, or um, YouTube, wherever you, you rent your movies. So speaking of the movies, and speaking of summer, we are going to uh, continue on with um, our backwards look at summer movie seasons of the past. And this, this, this week we're doing the summer of 1984. And we're going to kick off in a sec. I didn't put this movie on my list, but <laughs> just as I was like getting ready for the show, I noticed this like, weird detail. Um... In 1994, there was a movie that came out on May 6th uh, called Clean Slate, and it starred Dana Carvey. And it was uh, Dana Carvey, who was one of the, like, pristine players on Saturday Night Live in the late 80s, early 90s. He was George H.W. Bush um, and everything. So it was expected he was going to have a big, like, post-Saturday Night Live career, like John Belushi or... Dan Aykroyd or like Will Ferrell in the modern context, but that didn't happen. He did do a movie called Clean Slate, which was about Dana Carvey plays a private investigator who loses his memory. He's like a, a witness in a murder case, but he loses his memory. The writer of that film was Robert King, who you may remember as one of the um, people who created The Good Wife. Uh, he he co-created The Good Wife with his wife Michelle King. But <laughs> I took a look at. <laughs> I took a look at his writing credits as a screenwriter before he created The Good Wife in 2009. Um, here's some of the highlights. There's Under the Boardwalk, which is like some sort of teen romance. There's Blood Fist, which starred somebody named Don the Dragon Wilson. There's Phantom of the Mall, colon, Eric's Revenge, which is, as you could imagine, it's the Phantom of the Opera, but like in a mall. Uh, there is something called Silk 2, uh, Clean Slate, Speechless, um, which I remember the advertising, I don't remember what the movie's about, but he also co-wrote, uh, Cutthroat Island, Red Corner, which is basically about (laughs) Richard Gere being persecuted by the Chinese, and, and Vertical Limit, so that's, I mean, let that be a lesson, kids, you can shovel a lot of crap as a screenwriter before you get your big break as a pristine Platinum Age TV showrunner. Uh, I digress because I have to, I have a lot of movies to get through here. <clears throat> so we're going to start uh, again on May 6th. Three Ninjas Kickback came out that summer. What's weird about Three Ninjas Kickback is it was not 
the sequel to Three Ninjas. It was the third Three Ninjas movie that was made. Uh, Three Ninjas Knuckle Up uh, was made back-to-back with Three Ninjas. But because of like distribution issues that sometimes happen, um, it ended up being released after uh, the third movie in the trilogy, Three Ninjas Kickback. So now you know. On May the 13th, Crooklyn comes out, and it's uh, Spike Lee's semi-autobiographical film. Uh, it was the first movie he made after Malcolm X. So he had this like huge success uh, with like Do the Right Thing. Um he made a couple more movies. Then he made Malcolm X, this big, huge, like, lavish biopic about Malcolm X. And then he, he went small again and made Crooklyn. Um, still one of his best, I think. The Crow also came out that weekend. And um, I don't know what else can be said about The Crow at this point. <laughs> I mean, it's uh, it still has that cursed feeling on it. I, I think... I don't, I'm not sure individuals are really cursed by The Crow. I think... You know, the franchise is cursed. There was never... I, I watched all the Crow sequels. None of them are good. Uh, Alex Proyas, after The Crow, he did make Dark City, which is really, really good. But then, in recent years, he's, like, associated with Knowing and Gods of Egypt, which are not good movies. So, maybe Alex Proyas was cursed by The Crow, but... And, and the franchise itself. I mean, they've, been also, they've also been trying for years to remake The Crow to no success. Um, on May the 20th, we get Even Cowgirls Get the Blues, which was Gus Van Sant's fourth film, and kind of like his, like, a a rare total and complete flop for Van Sant. Um, it's like over the top, it's kind of him trying to melt his own aesthetic with something more mainstream, it, it just, it completely fails on all accounts, and after, I mean, fortunately, after this, he did sort of retreat into To Die For, which is uh, still a great movie, and like a really great early showcase for Nicole Kidman, she is really fierce in that, and um, a couple of years after that, he then made Goodwill Hunting, and, you know, mixed feelings there, it's a bit saccharine for my taste, um, but I digress. Uh, you also get Maverick that weekend, which, you know, Richard Donner, uh, doing a big screen version of, uh, a Western about, like, a cowboy con man, uh, starring Mel Gibson and Jodie Foster. Kind of a, a middle-brow success. On May 25th, you get Beverly Hills Cop 3, which is just, like, not necessary at all. It feels like a contractual commitment. Um, it's directed by John Landis, and it's not, like... It doesn't fail because John Landis isn't an action director, but I mean, this is also like late era John Landis, like where he he's kind of completely lost steam. He he made Coming to America, and I assume that's why Eddie Murphy kind of hired him to make um, Beverly Hills Cop Three. But I mean, this just comes in like a line of just completely crappy <laughs> movies from Oscar, which is like the Sylvester Stallone comedy. Um, to, you know, Innocent Blood and The Stupids and Blues Brothers 2000, like, John Land is just, uh, he should have went out on a high note with Coming to America. On May 27th, we get The Flintstones, which is almost infamous for, like, how many people were involved in the writing of that script, and I just use finger quotes for script, like, um, 
obviously there are three writers credited for the screenplay, but rumor has it there are as many as 18 screenwriters uh, <laughs> in that kitchen uh, cooking up the screenplay, and uh, it just, yeah. It, none of it kind of works. It, it, is, it kind of comes out of this moment. Like, you could tell somebody at the studio is like, yes, we can now do the dinosaurs. Like, look at Jurassic Park. We just did dinosaurs. And, and it, I mean, it, Jurassic Park was going for realism. Flintstones obviously was not. Somewhat, like, obviously felt like all the elements came together um, to, to, make, to make this uh, from John Goodman uh, to, and, uh, you know, the cat. The cast is actually pretty good. John Goodman as Fred, Rick Moranis as Barney, Elizabeth Perkins as Wilma, Rosie O'Donnell as Betty. Um, and then Elizabeth Taylor, this is her last film role in this abysmal, stupid live-action cartoon remake. She she plays Fred's mother-in-law, Wilma's mother. And it's great casting. I'm not saying it's not good casting, but, you know, this is another one of those sad examples of, like, great actors, terrible final roles, like Orson Welles playing the the evil transforming planet in Transformers the movie. On June 10th, we get City Slickers 2, The Legend of Curly's Gold, another unnecessary sequel. Um, we also get Speed, which, you know, after Die Hard, it's like one of these like key seminal action movie like kind of shorthand references, you know, like Die Hard in the White House, well, Speed, um, <laughs> you know, Speed at a racetrack, or Speed... Um, in an elevator, or, you know, it it, it it sort of had that kind of impact on the culture. And of course, they they did try a sequel for Speed Two. I I have fun, I have a fondness for Speed Two Cruise Control, although I recognize other people do not. Speed on a boat uh, did not necessarily click the same way, especially since uh, Jason Patrick is a poor substitute for Keanu Reeves. In the context of Speed, Jason Patrick is a good actor in other regards. On June 15th, we get The Lion King, which is, for the first time, Disney released an animated movie in the summer, at least, like, in their post-Little Mermaid renaissance. Um, the, the animated movies had come out around Christmas time to take advantage of, like, family time and Oscar buzz and all that stuff. And then uh, it releases Lion King in the summer, and it's even a bigger hit. And, of course, it's helped along with, like, the Elton John soundtrack, um, a celebrity voice cast... Uh, including James Earl Jones. Um, it, it really is like one of these lines where you can sort of see uh, how Disney changed and developed how it an uh, developed animated movies after The Lion King and before The Lion King. There's uh, things that they've tried later on, like um, Phil Collins wrote all the songs for Tarzan um, that came out years uh, five years after that in '99. So it just it's you know more emphasis on voice on celebrity voice casts and and all that stuff. Uh, two days later on June the seventeenth, you get Wolf, which you know Jack Nicholson and James Spader as werewolves. How can you go wrong? Um, on June twenty fourth, you get Wyatt Earp, which is Kevin Costner's version of the the gunfight at the old K Corral story, and it's like obviously the. He didn't direct it, of course, but it, it has the Kevin Costner, like, overdeveloped, overlong, melodramatic oeuvre to it. And that's why Wyatt Earp is kind of, um, it comes out after Tombstone, which is much more punchy, much more snappy, much more action-oriented. And um, 
it, it, it just could not compete by the time uh, Wyatt Earp came out. It couldn't compete with Tombstone, which already was casting this long shadow over um, the, the whole Wyatt Earp, OK Corral saga. On July 1st, we get Baby's Day Out, which is basically uh, Home Alone out and about in the city with mobsters chasing an animatronic baby, and it is as stupid as it sounds. You get Blown Away, which is part of this, like, IRA action subgenre as, you know, the the, the great, the troubles in, in Ireland were sort of coming to a head. You get Jeff Bridges as a cop uh, facing off against Tommy Lee Jones as uh, an IRA terrorist. You also get The Shadow, which is one of these attempts to make um, film franchises based on comic books and comic strips um, in the shadow of, of Batman, the success of Batman. Um, famously, Sam Raimi wanted to make a Shadow movie, but he made Darkman instead because he couldn't get the rights. And then a few years later, Russell, Russell Mulcahy, who um, made The Highlander, amongst other things, um, makes his movie. And I actually don't think it's that bad. I think it's a very enjoyable B-movie, and Alec Baldwin's pretty... Um, Alec Baldwin in it. <laughs> uh, on July 6th, you get Forrest Gump, which, you know, has sort of been reevaluated in the last few years. Um, this kind of baby, baby boomer nostalgia kick that was uh, very much alive and kicking in the 90s. And if, if that's enough, that, you know, here's this story of, uh, granted, um, a, a, a white man with developmental issues, but still, you know, he's able to fall ass backwards through history and uh, has all sorts of adventures and encounters without necessarily <laughs> encountering the, the the real struggles of the time. And, and I think people are looking back at that and, and recognizing that um, there could have been so much more done with this, this story that doesn't actually happen because it's just it's it's basically the greatest hits of the 50s 60s and 70s um and i think that plays to a certain type of viewer mostly people who remember with uh longing about the 50s 60s and 70s on july 15th we get and i only mention it because i remember a time when disney used to do more than franchises angels in the outfield which um it pretty much delivers what it promises angels in the outfield um and then true lies uh comes out that same weekend again kind of a problematic thing the way it depicts like middle east uh extremists um very very uh let's say not subtle uh but it is what james cameron did between t2 and titanic so it is notable in that regard and it's one of these things for years they've been trying to make a sequel to for some reason or been talking about making a sequel to that's not a that's, I don't think that's ever been a foregone conclusion. On July 20th, we get The Client, which is part of the Grisham Wave in the early 90s. Uh, Joel Schumacher directed it. And then he you know, came back next year, uh, or the next year, and directed A Time to Kill, which is another Grisham drama. On July 29th, uh, there's The Mask, which is, I mean, 1994 was the year of Jim Carrey, and The Mask was the summer movie that, that he was in. Um... I have not watched it lately, but uh, the effects kind of hold up. Uh, I could be wrong about that. On August 3rd, you get Clear and Present Danger, which is Harrison Ford's second um, Jack Ryan drama. 
Uh, on August the 5th, you get Airheads, uh, which is, you know, uh, which was kind of a breakthrough from Adam Sandler, and he's playing against uh, Brendan Fraser and, if I'm not mistaken, Steve Buscemi. And it's a, it's a pretty funny movie uh, that shows off all those comedic talents. Uh, on August 10th, you get Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. And uh, we wrap up this summer with uh, The Color of Night, which is this Bruce Willis erotic thriller. Um, they, they don't make erotic thrillers like that anymore, let's just say that. And then uh, the summer ends with Oliver Stone's Natural Born Killers and Wagons East, um, which was John Candy's, uh, sadly John Candy's last movie. He died on the set of Wagons East. That was almost 30 years ago now. And how time flies. Because... Time flies when you're recording a show, and we have to throw it to our musical break, and then come right back with our review of A Quiet Place, Part 2. You're listening to End Credits here on CFRU, 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus, and Community Radio. as before and we will be beyond the sea and never again I'll go sailing no more sailing so long sailing bye bye sailing goodbye sailing And that was a clip from A Quiet Place Part 2. It is the new film from John Krasinski, and it stars Emily Blunt, Killian Murphy, Melissa Simmons, Noah Jupe, Jaiman Hansu, and John Krasinski. All right, I'm now being joined on the line by Tim Phillips. Tim, how are you today? Doing well, Adam. Enjoying the summer. I'm officially double vaxxed, so I feel a bit more freedom. Mm -hmm. How about yourself? Mm -hmm. Uh, well, I, I'm double vaxxed too. I, my, my incubation period is complete, uh, in a couple of days and, uh, and then it's, uh, the, the summer of the double vax summer can officially begin. So, I mean, for me, I mean, it's it started for a lot of people, but for me and, and I am the most important. So there we go. Sounds good. You're just going to go wild, right? <laughs> just crazy I'm, in the I am, streets. I'm going to lick everything I see and, okay. uh. Uh, I'm gonna sp- I'm gonna spit on people and like okay. say no, it's okay because I'm double vaxxed. So. Okay, that's that's fair warning then. 
Anybody sees Adam, <laughs> stay six feet away, not because you'll get COVID, because he'll spit on you. <laughs> yeah, first first five rows are a splash zone. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> speaking of being prepared for the end of the world, um, yeah. we're reviewing A Quiet Place Part 2, which, Tim, you uh, drew this one. It uh, piqued your interest. So uh, yeah. what attracted you to A Quiet Place Part 2? Uh, yeah, thanks, Adam. So, A Quiet Place Part One. I'd I'd seen that movie previously, and I enjoyed it. And uh, this one is getting a lot of buzz and attention. And uh, I was kind of movie like if we were completely back in normal times. I know we joke with COVID going on, and but if we were completely back in normal times, it's kind of like blockbuster. I would probably want to go see in a movie theater. But I was able to stream it on Prime, and it's widely available on Amazon Prime. So I thought, yeah, it'd be great to see it and see what the uh, sequel looks like. Uh, interested because uh, John Krasinski wrote and directed this one solo, uh, mm. last one he co-wrote. So just see what the progress is for it. And actually, I'd heard really good word of mouth from some friends about the second one, so I thought I'd check it out. Mm-hmm. Um... Yeah, it is widely available. So if you have your Amazon Prime streaming account, you can uh, you can pop right on and see it for free, amongst the other stuff uh, that you also get for free on Amazon Prime. Which uh, I'm glad I discovered almost literally at the last minute before I watched it. Uh, I was kind of doom scrolling through Twitter and I saw uh, like a paid ad that said a quiet place was streaming on Prime. I was like, do they mean like you can rent it? Because I knew you could rent it. Um, but then I, I looked on my uh, the Amazon Prime. I was like, "Oh no, I can stream it for free!" So that was uh, five dollars I saved. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> penny saved is a penny earned. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, it's it was on my to watch list too um, because I was very fond of the first one. Um, seeing it in this almost packed house at at the theater and. Uh, ye olden days um, it, it's a really great theatrical experience um, to sort of be fully immersed in that quiet um, you know the it, it's so, it's so interesting when you go to like a big loud movie like the Avengers or Transformers or something and and um, the, all, all that noise and the explosions and the music and the zapping noises sort of fill the space it's so weird to be in that same space when there's no noise at all and it was a you know so every like sort of like creak or broken branch or just like reverberates through the whole place which is kind of why watching a quiet place part two at home was kind of a disappointing experience like not the movie was disappointing but the experience was kind of disappointing because um like once again like the sound design is is like a big part of the success and um, I was watching it with headphones on because um, there are times where you know people are whispering where it's really quiet. Like the whispering is so quiet, but then any other, every other noise, like somebody like, <laughs> like <Yeah>. pushes <laughs> a door and the door creaks, it like busts your speakers out. <laughs> it's yeah, like, exactly. <laughs> and <laughs> it's it, like it, it, the the sound design is so great, and and it has to be for something like this. So it just I have a feeling that that sort of auditory experience in the movie theater would 
have been more satisfying than just sort of watching it on my TV with my headphones on. But having said that, like the movie itself is, um, I mean, it's really hard to do a great horror sequel, but it, it is, um, immensely rewarding to see like a, uh, a really good horror sequel. Um, and John Krasinski, he doesn't take any big swings. Like he doesn't like really kind of come up with anything too terribly innovative, but he opens up the world just enough that you get like a slightly bigger adventure. Um, you get a lot more, not a lot more, but you get some more detail into like what the world now looks like. And, um, there's a lot of really well executed sequences. It, it's a very tightly edited movie as well. So, um, I'd be very interested to see what John Krasinski could do on something that wasn't a quiet place. Um, cause he's, he's clearly someone who has some mastery of the directing craft. So, um, yeah, I, 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 I was very satisfied by a quiet place part two. I don't think it's as, uh, it hits you as hard as a quiet place part one, but it is, um, it is a, it is a very, well-crafted movie i have to say yeah i I think i think so i would say um i saw quiet place part one i streamed that too i didn't see it in a theater so i do sort of envy your experience there because i could (laughs) see probably in a theater yeah with the just the all the silences and then just like jump scares just happening uh left right and center there how it could be uh it could be a really, really engaging experience. So, uh, but I did enjoy the first one better than the second one, even just mm-hmm. streaming both of them. Uh, one thing I liked about quiet place part two was the opening sequence, um, yeah. in the, in their small town there where John Krasinski is actually acting in it. So it's a flashback yeah. <laughs> <laughs> at yeah, first. I was yeah. like, did I miss something here? But it's a flashback <laughs> to, uh, before the first uh, quiet place um, when the aliens um, first are arriving and it is just I think it's absolutely compelling that first scene and to tell the truth I'm not the biggest John Krasinski fan um, uh, for his acting like I I like the U.S. office but I, I was always I always liked the UK version better and I felt like the U.S. office it ended up exceeding the UK office but it took like a hundred times the episodes to get there and John Krasinski, to me, sometimes his sort of like WTF moments on, uh, you know, <laughs> the documentary, they, they got a bit repetitive for me. So I think he was he was good. And I can see the appeal of him as sort of like an everyman. And he does a great job in, in that role in this film in a limited um, time frame right at the beginning with saving his kids and and just r- rushing away from the aliens. Uh, but I really liked that opening sequence. I thought it was absolutely compelling. Um, mm. I'm from a small town too, so I could relate to just the look of like sort of the main street of the small town and, uh, you know, the baseball game being the center of attention, the children's baseball game that mm-hmm. day. And then all of a sudden it's like, you know, truly WTF what's going on here. Um, and, and, and fleeing and trying to save your family. So I really like that. And criticism I'd have for the movie going forward is after that, it was, I thought he did a really good job with, um, with what he was working with. And once again, sort of a constrained, constrained sort of settings, like everybody has to be underground. Everybody has to be hiding from, 
mm-hmm. from these aliens. But I say maybe an hour in or so, I started to lose a bit of interest to tell mm. the truth. I, you know, I, I went from being com- absolutely compelled to sort of like, okay, you know, here, here we go again. They're going to have to avoid. <laughs> here, come the here we go again. Here, here we go again. <laughs> oh, they're going, on, she's going on a train. Okay. There's going to be one there or it's going to hear her. So, you know, and, but you know, I did really like, I really like the acting, uh, mm. especially the the daughter, the the deaf daughter, mm-hmm. played um, by Millicent Simmons. Um, mm. Killian Murphy, I thought was good. I've mm-hmm. seen seen him in in better things. Um, I thought he's good in this. Um, and uh, yeah, it's a solid role. It's just yeah, at the end of the day, it is you know it is. A, a horror movie where you're like okay here here we go we're we're uh here come the the, the mo- monsters are going to come we're gonna have the jump scares and i had like two or three jump scares in this seriously so i was i i, I did jump out of my seat but mm-hmm. it just yeah there was somewhere where it just felt like it was waning a bit um, and then it's set up for the sequel, right? With the way, <laughs> you know, here we're going to set it up for the sequel, which is fine. That's the way modern movies are made nowadays. You know, for like a franchise, there's obviously going to be a part three. Um, but I just felt at, at a certain point, I was kind of losing my interest. And I'd like them to maybe, I don't know, in the third one, change some settings more, have have something, bring something new to the table. Because I mm-hmm. think he did he did an excellent job with what he's working with. But if he does that again in the third one, I think probably more viewers, their attention will start to wane. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it just because I felt like that pre-opening credit sequence. That's what was so refreshing about it. Is, okay, now we're seeing in in the town and what happened, and then you know we're back. They have to be back to survival mode after that, and they're really innovative, innovative with the way they're taking on the uh, the aliens and. We're seeing uh, the worst side of human beings um, when, when they're out in the world. Mm. And, and it does relate a lot. It works well in today's environment with, with COVID. You feel that same thing. You know, there's the scene where they go to the island because mm. it's safe on the island because the uh, aliens can't swim. So it's safe there. And mm. it kind of feels like a, it feels interesting for like a how it is in the COVID times here. It's like, Oh, you feel safe. Okay. I'm double vax everything. I'm on an Island now. I'm cool. I'm talking <laughs> to people, but you know, you've got these monsters around the corner and, and I thought, I thought when, when they went to the Island, that was interesting, but then it was so short before the aliens are back attacking. Right. Mm-hmm. It just felt like I almost could use just almost some normalcy or something just to set it up more just a little longer on the normalcy. So then the, the scares would be even that much worse. Yeah, it's, I, I think it suffers from, I can't believe I'm going to say this. I think it suffers from trying to do a lot in 90 minutes. Um, I, I wasn't too terribly bothered. It, you know, in horror movies, you typically can't find reprieve for too long before that reprieve is interrupted by, by the horrors that are chasing you. Uh, safety is, is only if ever uh, a temporary oasis, I guess. Uh, yeah, th- 
there, there's so much I want to unpack. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like the first 30 minutes are, it, 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 it's like a steamroller. It, you know, you go from this like idyllic American, uh, Americana baseball setting to the alien attack and everything's chaos. Um, and then you come back to where the first movie leaves off where, um, the, the dad has been killed and, uh, Emily Blunt has to lead the kids and their newborn baby into, um, like greener pastures. And, um, you know, there, there's a really interesting scene where they get to the end of like this salt path they've laid out so that, you know, there's there's somewhere where they can walk where they're not making noise, and you know, it's a really great visual image that you see this white path just stop, and you're like, oh, now they're at like the end of the world they know, and from this point on, they're going into an unfamiliar world, and and then you go right into this sequence where the the path becomes dangerous they get exposed and then they run into the killian murphy character and that entire sequence it feels like it's like 10 minutes long but it's actually like one third of the movie (laughs) and and so by the time you get to like the relative safety of of um killian murphy's bunker uh a third of the movie is over and then you finally get this like sort of long quiet part where people are able to take stock and and catch up and you know, as a viewer, you're able to catch your breath. And that's really like to be able to like like to push that uh to to the limit um is really quite impressive. Um like it, it's the the directing is like really confident. And I think this is Krasinski's second movie. I don't like after a quiet place, I think he made this, and then that's like all his directing. I'm gonna double check that really quick, but um I understand what you're saying with the sort of sequel setup, and yeah, I could have done without that, but um, there's something to the way this was kind of made that plays into a lot of the things that were done in the first film, but also, again, I, I feel like it it opens up the world that this, that, that, that this, the universe that this movie takes place in, like sort of just enough um, we get brief glimpses at like two different factions of this where um, we get a, a glimpse of like this feral faction and um, I would agree <laughs> that you know COVID kind of informs all our worldviews now mm-hmm. um, but at the same time I was watching that like like these you know sort of malevolent people who are laying traps and things to lure good people in so that they can, I don't know, eat them or exploit them or something. But, um, my, my first thought was like, like we're going feral. It's like a year, a year and a half into this thing and we're going feral. It's <laughs> that's yeah. somewhat hard to believe. Uh, but okay. Uh, we're doing that. But then we also get the other side of this with this idyllic Island community where they're surrounded by water which is another thing I'd kind of like not fully kind of cognizant of. Cause like there's freaking water everywhere. It's like, like, are we saying that uh, there's no aliens on long Island or that they're, they're taking the bridge and tunnels to get there. But I, <laughs> well, one I took a, one took a boat to get to this Island though. Yeah. But um, that kind of felt like an accident. Like, it, yeah. 
like it it was on the boat and it left the dock and delisted. But I mean, it anyway. That, that's yeah. kind of like like these are kind of the questions that you get after the fact that ma- that start making you question your assumptions about liking the movie in the first place. But um, there there's so much like there's so much going on um, with you know this this character played by Killian Murphy and there. Because it's Killian Murphy, and he he's played a lot of like bad dudes. You kind of wonder if he's a bad dude. Also, like the the conspicuous absence of his family makes you wonder, like, hmm, maybe he you know snapped and killed his family. Um, or well, there's that know, moment that moment where it does he does reveal like about his wife being sick and right and yeah that that's that's pretty uh, pretty interesting character development there where he, his wife's sick and. He had to choose to like, almost like save himself, right? And uh, mm-hmm. Evelyn says, "Oh, you made the right choice." Um, mm-hmm. But then, then they have that conflict where they they're comparing him to um, the Krasinski character. What was what's his character's name again? Uh, uh, Lee, I think. Lee, yeah, they're comparing him to Lee, and he'll never be like Lee because Lee, you know, sacrificed so much for his family, and you mm-hmm. didn't. So you see that in inner turmoil with the Killian Murphy character. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's not like it is. Like you said, it's a, it's a genre picture. It's a horror movie. So you're not going to see him mm-hmm. um, delve too deeply into it. Although there is that scene where he gets everyone underground in his bunker there to mm-hmm. safety. And, and you're able to learn more about what's been happening and learn more about these characters. Which yeah. Is interesting. A- there's a lot of work done there, um, like establishing just like how much he's willing to risk because you you get a sense. Well, you don't get a sense. It's it's kind of explicit that he's like watching them struggle as they're approaching his oh, yes. camp, <laughs> um, and and it's like it's kind of only after the um, when uh, Reagan the the daughter who who um, is hearing impaired where she reveals that like they have they basically have a weapon that can kill the aliens um that he goes oh maybe this like you could almost see the the wheels turning in his head like oh this could be useful and um (laughs) you know they're kind of just around long enough to learn how for him to learn how they did it but then he's like right back to um okay like you can stay for now but like tomorrow you like you you all have to go um quick update on the on john krasinski directing filmography he's actually directed four films Okay. He did brief interviews with Hideous Men, which was his first film in 2009. And then he did a movie called The Haulers, which I think I vaguely remember coming out in 2016. But he also directed several, not several, but like two or three episodes of The Office. So he's he's not inexperienced. Um, no. The other thing I'll say about the character development is what, what I found very interesting is the reversal of sort of the gender roles too, um, because it's the daughter um, Reagan who goes out on the mission to try and find this like radio source um, that, that could be like a, a safe Haven. And she kind of goes out on her own into the, like the dangerous world. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, to, to sort of <laughs> try and save the family to try and like lead in her de- father's example. And then, the, the mom Emily Blunt goes into town to get like medical supplies, and leaves the the son all alone to um, take care of the baby. And of course, mm-hmm. 
you know, there's the scene where the where Reagan tells him her plan to like go and find the radio source, and he's like, like, don't do it, don't do it, and it's it's just sort of fascinating that in typical horror movies, that part, like the doubting Thomas, the 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 domestic um, partner, is kind of the uh, a, a female role. Um, and in this, it's the, it's like one of the few male roles yeah. <laughs> it's, um, where he's like, uh, don't go, you know, it's dangerous out there. Don't, you know, don't do anything risky. And then he gets left at home with the baby. It's just, there's, uh, John Krasinski, I think knew what he was doing there. So, yeah, it's interesting. Um, cause you're talking about typical horror movies and, you know, sort of gender roles. And it's interesting that you picked out those two because they are uh, different from what we usually see. Um, but there was some stuff that to me seemed similar. So it's kind of, mm-hmm. kind of interesting. Uh, not just gender roles, but first with gender role, um, when the daughter Reagan goes on her own, um, cause she's got the solution to, to solve <laughs> the problem. Um, how, um, Evelyn, uh, tells, uh, the Killian Murphy character, Oh, you've got to go, go find her you have to go right save yeah her. so he's like the man of the house now right in a way <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know so that's very traditional like emily blunt wasn't going although she ends up going out you know later um sort of out of a desperation she has to leave but she's like killian murphy now you're the, you're lee now you have to go out and uh save our daughter and so that's a very traditional gender role I felt mm-hmm. the uh, Lee character at the start, you know, is the dad, very, very traditional, which is fine. They're a nuclear family in a small town. That that makes sense. But and then also just the the one black character in the film ends up getting killed up by dead. the aliens. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. And you see it and it's like you think how we're so hyper aware now of everything like that. And it's kind of interesting that that character who who's one of the like Islanders who's, you know, they're, uh, they're living their norm, almost like a normal life out there. Mm-hmm. Um, ends up, you know, he's a leader of his, his colony there. And then, you know, shortly after the aliens are killing him, mm-hmm. <laughs> the aliens killing him, the, the one black character. So it's kind of, kind of interesting that that happens, you know, cause it's such a, horror trope at, you know at this point that that the uh the uh, black character will 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 die will be one of the first ones to die in the movie so mm. um i found i found that interesting i know it's just that's just the way that's just the way the film played out uh but it's yeah it's there is a lot of almost traditional horror stuff in there and you can tell that krasinski has been inspired obviously and probably done a lot of research on horror movies and you know the you know the mechanisms of them and it it really it works like a fine-tuned machine in that regard although as i said for myself i started Mm -hmm. to lose interest for an hour in or so because they're they're short movies like the first one was 90 minutes this one's 90 minutes when you start combining them though it starts Mm. feeling like like you said it opened up the universe i think it did uh, I'd like to, to be opened up even more, and hopefully in the third installment, it's opened up even more to just sort of variety of settings, characters, stuff like that. You know. Well, speaking to the tropes too, I mean, the, it also plays into like some very obvious like post-apocalyptic tropes, where um, in in the world like post 
disaster. You get uh, other than the heroes who are who who can be morally ambiguous. You get some people who have just completely gone ravenous, and then you get you know lost lambs who are like, oh, we can you know we're still holding up society and it's perfect, la 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 la, and you know there's kind of no in between. And I, I grant you that there, there's kind of a, a reason and an excuse and in, in, embedded in the script for why the people on the island are sort of you know innocence they they got out on day one and haven't had to live in silence you know trying to evade the creatures for a while but i mean it, it's still it's still a thing that that happens in horror movies or you know something like the walking dead where um you know they're a, they meet like cannibals and um people who are setting up their own fiefdoms and dictatorships and then they meet like idyllic colonies where people are trying to put together semblances of normal life. And it, it's just, it's, it's all kind of simplistic, but I mean, I always believe that being formulaic isn't necessarily bad. It's about like, can you do the formula well? And if you, you know, it's kind of like a measure of a director. If you can do the formula well, you can then break the formula and, and try and do something different with it. Um, as you kind of go along and what I will say about a quiet place part two is that it does the formula really, really well. And it sets up some, you know, interesting sequences. Um, it, it uses the rules it's established in very interesting and new ways. And I mean, they're also like really interesting flourishes, just like there's a scene where, you know, before she, uh, Reagan gets on the train where she walks past the, the train platform and kind of all you see everywhere are high heels and uh, yeah. ab abandoned high heels, which are like not only in kind of an impractical shoe, but uh, probably not at least from, from a movement point of view, but also an impractical shoe because um, they tend to be kind of a noisy shoe to wear. <laughs> yeah. So you, know, you see this train platform where like, the, the only kind of thing you see that people like just lost immediately in, in the aftermath of this invasion is the high heels. Um, you know, just little touches like that. Like the world building is uh, there's such great care in it. And, and it's not an exposition dump either, which, you know, in movies like this lets you know when like people have kind of gone way off the, the thread is when you have to have to, when you have to stop and explain the world, just if you could just show things like that, it really, um, it really taps into your imagination for for you know what this world is like, and and what it's like to live there, and just like scenes where, um, you see like the the camera follows the characters at foot level, and you can just see like how grubby and and dirty their feet are because all they do is live in their bare feet because. Um, you know, shoes can make noise. It, it, it just, you know, just the little details um, really make all the difference um, in, in a situation like that. And, you know, again, it may be formulaic in some respects, but if you can do the formula and do it well, um, I mean, that's why it's a formula. That's why it works. And, you know, it, it, perhaps if there is a third one, maybe we can blow up the formula a little, but it just in terms of just solid filmmaking um, I, I think John Krasinski does a lot with a little. Yeah, show don't tell. I think the platform's interesting. You mentioned that because you can see that people are on their way to work. You know, um, mm -hmm. 
dressed up and that's yeah you see the high heel shoes that makes sense because if you're gonna run run like hell you're gonna th- take off your high heels <laughs> and just start running right you're not gonna right. not gonna worry about fashion at that point and mm-hmm. it uh yeah and i i think uh yeah i agree really does a good job putting us in that environment and uh making us feel for the characters without you know like like without a lot of exposition like you're saying i just almost feel like in the next one I'm probably will be this way because i don't think they're going to want to make it mm-hmm. they're going to want to maybe have some resolution in the third one unless they want to just keep churning these out but um they could um I think I think just that opening sequence to me, I thought I was most entertained during the opening sequence, which is a flashback before the the first film. I thought as it went on, the characters' development, I I really liked. Um, mm. I really liked the young daughter, the deaf daughter, you know, taking charge and and, and you know having practical solutions to help save the world. Uh, but I just felt it did get to, you know, a bit like, okay, they're going to go here. And then, and then here comes the, uh, here comes the creature, here comes the alien, which I understand is part of the genre. I just feel it's good in those brief movies, these 90 minute movies, you start adding them together and you go and you do another one that's like that. Then I think, I think I'll lose, lose even more interest, but. um, Well, I think, I think, Sean Krasinski has said he's not going to make the the third one, um, which I think is probably wise. I mean, it's it's very rare that you get sort of the same filmmaker back to back on on these things. You know, it's usually it's because I mean, back in the olden days, like in the eighties, when we were really cranking at horror movies and horror franchises, was because you know. Um, the studio wanted part two really, really quickly. But I, I mean, it also allows new talent to come in with new ideas. And um, I think that's probably where this needs to go next is, you know, to, to, to hand it over to someone who can, again, take the formula, push it to the next level. And I, I again I don't think I don't think this is a bad movie by any stretch of the imagination. I think it was quite no. good. But I, yeah, I think good. I think we get to the end of this and we realize that uh Krasinski himself has has done all he wants to do, can do, um with with this and that there really needs to be some fresh blood. If if not on the directing side, at least on like sort of the scripting side. We were, I mean Krasinski heavily involved in developing this world and and um this universe you know he could probably lend his expertise in some way as a as a writer or as a producer um but you know there's reasons to bring in some new talent for for the for part three so that it, it doesn't become stagnant um which i think is is kind of where we we get left off at at the end of this it's like I, I think that's also why the film sort of like ends like so abruptly is because I think we've reached sort of the end of, of what Krasinski is, is capable of doing with this is, you know, he's kind of run out of ideas. <laughs> the ending of the film says like, I really don't know how to end this story. So we'll just leave it here. Maybe someone <laughs> else will pick it up later, but um, yeah. it, 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 there's just, there, there's something to that idea that there, there's, 
there does need to be like a new voice to come in to, to push this franchise to the next level if it if it is indeed going to be a franchise well i read he has ideas for the third one so i think he's probably planning to at least write or if if he doesn't write the screenplay at least have the story for the third one so Mm -hmm. that that'll be that'll be interesting Mm -hmm. um i i think uh yeah i think it's 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 really good and it's this film much better than most fair you find nowadays especially when you're streaming <laughs> stuff so um yeah. i uh i i enjoyed it it's just yeah my my criticism was more like as you go on in the film it i just sort of it went from potential of being like a 10 out of 10 to like sort of like a 8 out of 10 7 mm-hmm. out of 10 maybe for me just and it's mm-hmm. and the ending actually I kind of enjoyed the the ending. It just, <laughs> it's just sort of, but at the same time, it's just that you know, shameless. <laughs> okay, wait for the next one. Here you go, which is so true of so many movies nowadays. It's just, uh, I don't know. I'd like, uh, I'd like it to, to to just be able to just sort of stand alone. Sometimes, you know, yeah, have it connected but stand alone. Yeah, all that was missing was kind of like the title card that said to be concluded or something. It was <laughs> <laughs> maybe that would have been pushing it too far. Uh, before wrapping up, just a quick note. Like a lot of this movie was shot just across the lake in western New York. So if if it has like sort of that air of familiarity, that's you know why it's kind of like home, <laughs> except it's it's Buffalo and uh, the Buffalo Greater Buffalo area, but um yeah so it's 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 nice it's nice to it's nice people have a reason to go to buffalo i guess do the quiet place tour anyway (laughs) Uh, your your, your plan uh when they open up the border (laughs) to do do a quiet place tour yeah (laughs) i mean let's do uh, it there's almost literally no other reason to go to buffalo anyway (laughs) um Tim, if people want to find you on the internet and trade uh, post-apocalypse survival tips, yeah. uh, where can people find you on the internet? I don't think I'd be good for the post-apocalyptic <laughs> tips. <laughs> in all honesty, I'd be the last person you'd want. I'm not Mr. Survival, but um, <laughs> check out uh, Flash in the Deadpan on social media. Wherever you use your social media, check it out. And that is it for this week's show. We hope you liked it as always, and if you want to listen to it again, you can find it on our website at endcreditsradioshow.com. You can also download it on the Guelph Politicast channel every Friday through Podbean, or you can get it through your favorite podcast app at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. And if you're in a musical mood and you are on your Spotify app, you can search for the playlist for much of the music that you hear on End Credits. Just search for End Credits on CFRU to find that playlist and you can also find us on social media on facebook at end credits radio show and on twitter at end credits radio i will be back here tomorrow at 5 p.m for news and politics on open sources guelph with scotty hertz in the meantime i'm on twitter and instagram at adam a donaldson or you can go to my political site at guelphpolitico.ca you can also stay tuned for more great programming here on cfru 93.3 fm cfru.ca guelph campus and Community Radio. We will be back next Wednesday at 3 p.m. for another edition of End Credits, and we will see you then.
Thank you.